I'm going to ask your patience and uh, endurance with me today. I've got something going on. I'm going to go a little clinic after a while, figure out what it is. I'm trying to stay away from people, but uh, I did want to come and, and share with you today. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see everybody here. I want to welcome our guest again, and uh, it's just a great time to be together. Um, you know, for Christmas last year, one of my daughters gave me a unique gift. Uh, it's the gift of StoryWorth. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, uh, but one thing I noticed about it, after I got it, it said, it's a great last-minute gift. I'm not, I wasn't sure if she really wanted to hear my story or she didn't know what to get me, so she got, didn't have any time. I don't know, uh, but it's, it's a good thing. But every Monday morning, I get an email with a question uh, about my life, prompting me to tell my story. And there's all kind of questions there, you know, about childhood and values and what I enjoy and all those different things. But there's one question I have not yet gotten. And it sounds like one based on what I might get, but I hope I don't. And that question is, what is my greatest failure? I hope I don't get that question because that's going to be a long story probably that I'll be able to tell. But I think all of us have failed at times in life. You know, failure is something that we... uh, have all experienced, and it can be fatal to some people. You know, some people, when they fail, they just kind of fold up the tent and go home. But in reality, failure can be leveraged in such a way that actually we can grow, and we can make us better, and that's how we should approach failure. And today, we're going to talk about failure a little bit. We're going to talk about how the church failed and what they did to fix it. Now, since the church is made up of human beings, every church I've ever seen is, who are failable, the church is going to fail us at times. And maybe you've been hurt by church, uh, by the church. I'm not going to ask you if you have because the odds are pretty good that you have been hurt at some point by the church, and that's how you view it. Not necessarily a person, but you view it, the church hurt you. And I can tell you the church hurt is probably the worst kind of hurt. And probably because we expect more from people. We expect people in the church to be perfect. We expect the pastor to be perfect. We expect leaders to be perfect. People within it, we expect so much. But when the church hurts us and lets us down, we're often devastated. Now, if if it sounded like I might have a little bit of experience there, I have. I've been in ministry 41 years or so. And I've been hurt by the church, and I'm confident I've hurt other people in the church. So we all got to recognize our place and our role there. But we're going to study the book of Acts about the church. So naturally, we're going to talk about the church's good points and bad points as well. And we've been following the story and the history of the early church. It's miraculous beginning on the day of Pentecost, the filling of the Holy Spirit, where God came down and into the hearts and lives of men and did incredible things. We talked about the rapid growth of the church. We talked about outside opposition, uh, where they were arrested and tried and beaten. We talked about um, Satan's attempt to corrupt the church from within last week about money. Remember that? And then God's swift judgment that came. And today we're going to be talking about how Satan acts to try to divide and conquer the church. How Satan tries to divide the church by raising up, in this case, one group of Christians against another group. And what this is going to do is going to show us that the church, because it's made up of human beings, is vulnerable to human sin, hurt, and failure. That the church is going to fail you at some time. It hasn't yet. uh, It probably will at some point. We probably will at some point because we're all human beings, right? And the reality is that every church fails at something. Every church fails at something. You know, every church is good at something. Every church is probably not so good at something. Uh, there are times that we drop the ball sometimes. 
There are times that we fail to meet your expectations, I'm confident. There are times that we hurt you without meaning to. Sometimes we misread the situation. We don't always know what the reality of it is or what the need is. Sometimes we act too soon. We act too late. We don't act at all. We fail to be everything to everyone. There must be a million ways that the church can hurt and fail you. But I do believe that when the church does that, when a church fails, when the leaders or members fail, it is not intentional. It is not deliberate. Nobody sets out to hurt people. That's not the goal of any church I've ever been a part of. And when that happens, the church should be given the chance to repair the damage, if possible, and should be forgiven. We can forgive people and the entity of the church because it's the body of Christ, imperfect as it is, and as we are because we make up the church. So that brings us to where we are in Acts chapter five in our, or excuse me, Acts chapter six in our study. It says, in those days when the members, numbers of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So in that day, there was a need of the church to provide and care for the needs of people in the community, their members and beyond that. They didn't have social programs or any way to care for the elderly people. There was no retirement type funds and most people just lived day to day. And so orphans and widows pretty much were dependent upon the the culture and the whole Jewish community, basically along with the temple authorities, in the Jewish culture, acted together to provide for the care of widows and orphans. That was an important part, always had been. But as the church began to to grow, and people began to kind of leave the Jewish community and follow the, the church community, it seems like the authorities decided to kind of withdraw and leave the church on its own. And more than likely, a lot of people in the community as well. So they began seemingly neglecting the Christian widows altogether. So the church, like it always does, the church stepped up to act and care, not only for all the widows and orphans and needy people around they possibly could, but especially for their own. You know, the Bible talks about our benevolent care, and it says that we should especially care for those who are part of the church family, the family of God, that we ought to care for the needy within. And that's what we're going to see here. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul establishes criteria for the church to literally provide total care in that day for a certain group of widows. And uh, here's some criteria. They didn't have any family member to take care of them. They were the only one that could do, do for themselves. They were over 60 years of age. They had been a faithful wife and were known for good deeds and who served the Lord faithfully. So if all those things, those criteria were met, it seems like the church just kind of took them in and provided and cared for them, which was great. Again, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that our culture, our government's kind of taken that away from the church, and we've let them do it, unfortunately. Um, but in that day, the, the church was responsible. So unfortunately, having this need and this responsibility as the number of Christians increased and began to grow, they were failing to give adequate care And the threat of division appeared because of that. This is just a typical kind of problem that churches deal with. Now, another issue was that by this time, the church was growing. It was about 14,000 people, more or less. And it was literally a mega church in that day. And the leaders were struggling to keep up with the people. I mean, it was growing so quickly that the needs were outgrowing their ability to, to lead. You know, I think every church really cares about the needs of its people and the needs of their community. 
But the reality is the church can't always meet every need, can't always do everything that's out there. And we have to understand that. I mean, some needs that we run up against are kind of unreasonable. They're really beyond what we can do. They're beyond the staff, the resources, the volunteers the church has available. You know, sometimes the church is asked to do things that we just literally weren't designed to do, you know, in culture, or we're not able to do the capacity of that. But at other times, the church just needs to get its act together and do what it can do because the church can always do more than they expect that they can do. So in verse one, it kind of explains the problem here. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So they were providing needs, but it seems one group was being slighted. Now, both of these were were Christians. Both groups of widows were Christians, but there were some differences. And uh, I'll tell you what they were because I didn't totally understand what this really meant until I did some study. The Hebraic Jews were more inclined to embrace Jewish tradition and culture, and most of them were from Judea. So these were hometown people. Their, their community was located there in Jerusalem, probably always had lived there, uh, very native to the area. But the Hellenistic Jews, <clears throat> they were more inclined to embrace the Greek culture, and they were mostly from other countries. There had been a, what they called diaspora or dispersing of Jews uh, back in Old Testament days. They'd gone all over the world, and many of them had come back to Jerusalem, but they brought their culture with them, and so they kind of leaned toward more of a Greek view versus a traditional uh, Jewish group. And uh, the Hebrews tended to regard the Hellenistic Jews as unspiritual compromisers with the culture around them. And the Hellenistic Jews viewed the Hebrews as holier than thou to traditionalists. So there was some internal conflict. And it wasn't just the widows that were upset like everything else. Uh, It was their respective communities as well. So there were large groups of people, like, you know, potential faction in the church. Again, they were all Christians, but this was the church's first threat of division. And so they're going to, we're going to see what they did to resolve this issue and this problem. Now, the Hellenists thought the Hebrews' uh, widows were being favored and given preferential treatment. And it may have been true, because if you read it there, the way it says, it almost states it as fact, that there was one group that was definitely being not elected in some way, not you know, uh, being prejudiced against them, but they just weren't getting the care that they needed. And so it seems to be a true issue. And, uh, <clears throat> but there doesn't seem to be any intention. Nobody set out to say, we're going to neglect this group of needy people. And it's, it's just, it just happened. Now, and maybe in one case, the Hebrew widows were, they were more aware of the area, the lay of the land. They knew the people, they had connections, networking. Maybe they just had better uh, access. They knew how to get help. But it really seemed like more a problem of poor administration and supervision and basically some growing pains. You know, problems like this oftentimes arise in the church. And uh, while it may seem like that things go pretty smoothly on the outside, sometimes internally issues kind of come up and they have to be addressed. The reality is the church is designed to grow because um, that's how Jesus made it. His goal is that none would be lost. Everyone come to the Lord. And when people come to the Lord, they become part of the church. And so Jesus is happy when a church grows, but sometimes people in the church aren't happy when the church grows. Maybe some of you have seen that. Not everybody is happy. And you know what? Satan sees an opportunity and and complaining starts. And it often sounds like this. It sounds like um, I'm not being fed or my needs are not being met or things aren't like they used to be or I made a request and it didn't change anything. 
Or maybe like this one. You know, I missed church intentionally for several weeks, and I just thought I would see how long it would take for somebody to call me. And they never did. Those kind of things, complaints come up. Somebody took my seat. I've heard of that. I've actually had been in churches where someone asked an individual to move because they were in their seat. Please don't ever do that. Don't ever do that, you know? Even if it's uh, your seat. Don't ever have your seat. Let's not do that, all right? Those kind of things come up and they're hurtful, right? They're hurtful. And I think in 40 years, I've probably heard about all the reasons people could complain every now and then I hear a new one. But I'll tell you, I'm no better because I'm just like you. I don't like some things. I don't like change. And I'm a complainer too. But I've come to know that although the church isn't perfect because it's made up of imperfect people like me, it's still the best thing on this earth. It is still the best thing on this earth. And the early church was the best thing on the earth. And we're going to see how even in the best of situations, there were problems. I mean, they had the best leaders possible. Today, we kind of get stuck with who we are, right? But in that day, they had people chosen by Jesus. Jesus chose and developed and built and trained the best leaders ever. They had good doctrine. I mean, they had the truth on their side. They were inspired by God, and they were writing the Bible. Their leaders were writing the Bible as they spoke. That's pretty powerful, right? So it wasn't the leader's issue. It wasn't a problem there. They had the best of everything. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. They love people, but they still failed. And that tells us that no matter what, the church is going to fail. The best churches fail at time. Now, the widows here, they were Christians, but they still complained, right? Because Christians complain about stuff. But the problem was it was potentially divisive, and it went public, it went public. It wasn't just within the church. How do we know it went public? Because Luke wrote it in the Bible. He tells us it went public. Everybody knew about it. And Luke said, you know what? This is big enough. I'm going to put it in a Bible. I'm going to put it in a book so everybody can read it thousands of years later. So that's why it was important. It was a really big deal. And it was potentially divisive in the early church. And so the church was failing and the damage was out there. The leaders were failing. You know, and like every church fails, every leader fails as well. Every pastor fails at something. Now, I feel like I'm good at a few things, a few, but I, there are some things that I'm not good at, some things I fail at. I know that. Don't be surprised. I know that personally, all right? But it's not intentional. It is not intentional. I don't set out to say, I'm going to let somebody down. I'm going to fail you at some point. I, I never set out to do that. My intention, and I will say all of our staff and our leaders and our volunteers, our intention is to do the best we can. But sometimes leaders fail for a lack of knowledge. Someone will say, did you hear about so-and-so? They were in a hospital for a week. I'm like, nope. Like, I don't have this crystal ball that tells me what happens in your personal life. I don't know these things. Or someone passed away and I just missed it totally. It just went, one of my very good friends, fathers passed away a couple weeks ago. I had no idea until it was too late. Sometimes we, fa- sometimes we fail because of lack of knowledge. Sometimes we fail because of lack of ability. We'd like to do better, but we just don't have the ability to do that. Sometimes it's a lack of time. Just not time enough for everything. Jesus did it all. He was perfect in every way, and he met everyone's needs. He taught, he preached, he prayed, he served, he healed, he forgave, he ministered, he loved, he cared, he fed multitudes, he never forgot, never missed an opportunity to serve. Jesus did it all, but he was perfect, right? He was perfect. The human leaders can't do that. 
We cannot do that. We got to have help. And that's how the church <clears throat> leaders approach this problem. We got to have help. We got to have some other people to step up and do that. So they gathered their leadership team together. They acknowledged the problem. They admitted that they had failed. They also admitted that they couldn't do it all and that they were going to have to prioritize their tasks. They were going to have to decide what's, what's, what can we do well and what do we need to ask others to do. And they said, we can't wait on tables and lead spiritually. So we're going to have to find some people so that we can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. See, the gospel was the source of the church's life. And they were not going to sacrifice the good news for good works. And that's important sometimes. You have to balance the two. You know, leaders oftentimes begin as generalists. And then they become specialists. And I think about that in my own life. When I began ministry... I did about everything in the church. I did all the preaching. I preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, and taught Wednesday night. I, saw, I taught a Sunday school class right before I preached on Sunday. I did all the calling, all the weddings, all the funeral. Uh, Lori and I led the youth group and the senior adults. Lori did the newspaper, uh, newsletter, and she led children's church, and I mowed the churchyard. I mean, we did all that stuff. I'm bragging. I'm just saying that's what we did, you know, and that's what, that's what preachers do in smaller churches, right? Now, thankfully, I don't have to do all that because I couldn't do that at all. Couldn't do that. I remember several years ago, I'll tell you this, but, but um, we had a gentleman who wanted me to weed the flower beds. He felt like I should come to work through the week and weed the flower beds. And I, I told him, I said, you know, I'm not too good. I've weeded these flower beds many times, but I'm not too good at that. But that's not really what the, the leaders want me to do. That's not a good use of my personal time. Thankfully, we have people that, that, do, that, that, that do that now. I don't have to. But um, I'm not too good to do any of those things. But we are blessed to have staff and volunteers who can do those things better than I can do them, right? So leaders have to figure out what they can do and what they shouldn't, should do and shouldn't do. Ministry is both words and works. We speak words and we do things. And what I've found is that some people are a lot better at one of those than the other, and they need to serve where they've been gifted and where they've been called. And the apostles are going to discover this to be true. Most of them had been laborers. They had been gifted at work and service when they were called by Jesus. They were fishermen. They were hard workers. And when Jesus taught them, he helped them learn how to serve, serve the people, do this, bring, bring people to me, do these things. And so they learned, how to, he learned, they learned how to do these things and develop their service, but now they had been called and they had been gifted by the Holy Spirit to preach and, and teach the gospel. And so they said, you know what, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, that service, we're not too good to do it, but we can't do it all. And so they, we got to get other people can. See, leaders have to do the things that only they can do and let other people do the rest. Even if you have the gift of service, you have to let other people do what they can do and do what only you can do. So these are the type of areas here <clears throat> that we have to have and allow grace for one another. So when somebody doesn't do everything we expect them to do, especially our leaders, we have to show the grace, the grace of God has shown us. Failure is often a mistake. It's not necessarily a sin. Nobody sinned against you. They just made a mistake. But at the same time, when those mistakes happen and the failures happen, they need to be corrected, and that's what they did. And so the next scripture tells us, they said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, although this doesn't use the actual word, this is where most people think the deacon ministry uh, came from, beginning right here in Acts chapter 6, because the word deacon actually means servant, one who serves. And to this point, the only recognized leading, uh, ministry leaders among the church were the apostles. So the apostles were trying to do everything to this point. No one had been acknowledged or recognized or set apart. And there were only 12 of them. Paul's going to soon be added here in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about that to the, to the 12 as the 13th apostle. But you know, as the church grew and went on, these apostles ended up becoming missionaries, traveled around the world. They ended up dying. Most of them as martyrs. And so the deacons that they set apart, this became, I believe, a tradition, were added to help serve and meet the needs of the church. Later on, elders were selected to lead each church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we find a list of qualities that both elders or deacons are to possess. And that's kind of where we get our church structure today. Well, the officers, leaders that we have in our church come directly from the scripture in 1 Timothy 3. Elders who lead and shepherd the church spiritually in prayer and ministry of the word. And also deacons who serve and meet the needs of the church. I serve as an elder, but I'm also under the elder board collectively. And I lead our staff and volunteers. And by the way, uh, next month, probably in a week or two, we're going to be sharing, presenting our 2024 uh, list of elder and deacon candidates for your confirmation, just to recognize that. So you'll kind of see all of this in action, how we have done this as well. But notice here, (coughs) they didn't just look for warm bodies. Because most of the time we want something done, we want warm bodies to do it, people just willing to. They didn't just do that to serve and lead in service. They reached out to the church body and they asked them to identify men with three basic qualities. Number one, men who were known. Men who were known. That meaning means that they had been around a while, that the church uh, kind of knew them and they knew their reputation and they knew their abilities, uh, that, that pe- men who were known. Secondly, uh, people who were full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, these were not just good guys that everybody liked. They were sold out believers who were letting the Holy Spirit lead and guide them. They were being led and full of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit has the ability to lead and to change people's hearts, their minds and lives. And when the Holy Spirit works in us, uh, he begins not only to be a part of our life, but also to gift us. And one of the areas that we're gifted in is the area of service and works. So it's pretty obvious when someone kind of pops up and starts serving and being available and helping, we say, well, they, that person may have the gift of, uh, of helps and service, and they might be recognized, called up to, to serve as a deacon. And the third thing is wisdom. And wisdom can be defined in a lot of ways, but let me just define it like this. They know how to do things. There are people who know how to do things and people that don't know how to do things, you know? And, and these were guys who knew how to do things. And the idea behind this <clears throat> being full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom is that these men were to be both spiritually minded and practically minded. So they had gifts, things they could do, but they were also spiritually growing and, and serving and they were showing up and doing things already. And so that's one of the kind of the ideas that when we think about deacons we, and elders, we think about people who are already doing those things. And then we say, well, let's, let's ask them to serve in this capacity and take additional responsibility. See, the, the apostles didn't have training in service and administration and, uh, and supervision and delegation. 
But there were men in the church who did, and they're willing to serve. And so they chose seven men. The list is given there. Stephen, especially noted to be full of the faith and of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read about Stephen next week. Philip, Procornus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Now, I didn't recognize this or think about it, but they all had Greek names, indicating that more than likely these were Hellenists. These were men from the community of the people, widows who were complaining, and they would be best equipped to serve uh, the widows in need. And so they brought these men, names to the apostles. The apostles examined them, vetted them, and prayed for God's guidance and counsel, and then they set them apart by laying their hands on them. And so these seven men were selected, and they all agreed to serve, and the work was delegated to them. And then the problem went away. That's great when problems go away when you address that. And I think this kind of shows us the power of the leading of the Holy Spirit. How the apostles responded gives us some great examples about how to respond to problems today. You know, they didn't throw the complainers out. They didn't, they didn't tell them to shut up. They didn't divide into two congregations and go, you, just, you go over there, we'll go over there, and we'll just agree to disagree, all right? Uh, they didn't uh, form a committee and discuss the problem to death, you know, which we oftentimes do. Um, they didn't give in to the pressure and say, you know, we just got to work harder. We just got to get up earlier, stay up later, put in more hours, uh, like neck our families. They didn't say that. They just delegated and they brought more and more people into the work of the ministry. And then they got back to preaching and teaching and making disciples and planting churches. And so with God's help, this problem was resolved. And those who had complaints, they got their needs met. Those who complained against them were, were generous and gracious. The, the deacons jumped in. They had excitement and enthusiasm to serve. The apostles were able to focus on what they were called to do. And Satan's plan to divide the church and distract the church was failed. In verse 7 it says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the church continued to grow and prosper in spite of its challenges. And in fact, it's, if you notice that last phrase, that there were a large number of priests. These were the people who ministered and served in the temple itself. And they're like, you know what? This is different. This is better. This is what God's doing and moving. This was the educated priest tribe, and they became obedient to the faith and began to follow after Jesus as well. You know, it may have been the first threat to the church and the unity of the church, but it wouldn't be the last. And you know, unfortunately, many times we don't resolve problems nearly as well as they did. It's had a great potential to divide, but it also had a great potential to multiply the church. But you know what I've noticed about the church <clears throat> is that Christ Church is a resilient and victorious church. It's a resilient church, and it has to be because the world and our humanness always presses in on it. Jesus said that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that the church will survive everything that Satan and the world can bring against it. But I will tell you, too, that the church is at its best when its leaders and its people all work together, when people use the gift that they have, when you show grace to one another when, the, when people fail you, when you just love people when they're not very lovable, when you meet the needs of people when they come up. That's when the church works best. That's when the church is really rocking at its best. And I will say, too, I'm so grateful for the people that we have here at Journey who take care of the things and, and the needs of the church that I'm not good at. 
and that I don't have time to, to do or the ability to do. I appreciate that so much because you guys are gifted. We have so many volunteers, so many people in our church who just step up and do things that I don't even think about. That allows me to have time to, to preach, study and preach and, and, and care for our flock. And collectively, understand that when you serve, no matter large or small, when you serve, you are a part of our mission to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. And that's what our heart needs to always be about. So I want to encourage you through this. The church is going to overcome. The church is the only institution that will outlast this world and will be gathered with the Lord. I want to be a part of that. I'm excited that we can share in ministry things like odds, other opportunities that we have, other mission partners, and that we care for our community. And I would encourage you to think about how you can serve and how you can make the kingdom of God stronger. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. <clears throat> thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the wisdom of, uh, of the leading of the Holy Spirit that led these apostles to, to stop a potentially divisive thing that could have divided the church and, and, and kind of wrecked the church, Lord. God, I pray we would have that same wisdom when we come up against challenges and, and issues and failures, when we, in our humanness, we fail people and hurt people, Lord, that they would show grace. We would all show grace and receive grace, the grace that you give, Lord. And Father, together we would grow closer to you. And Lord, move your mission forward. God, I pray this morning that there are those here who, who your spirit's been working on, maybe in a way totally different than the, than the direction of the message, but God, your, your spirit's been moving, that Lord, you would move those people to respond to you, that every one of us would step out to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship him. 